So uh, welcome everybody, uh, welcome to Big Tent um, USA. As most of you know, Big Tent is a national women-led pro-democracy organization promoting civic engagement through education and activism. Uh, tonight, I am thrilled to introduce our speaker, Ryan Bussey. Uh, soon after the horrific mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, several of us heard Ryan's conversation with Charlie Sykes on the Bulwark podcast. We were so impressed with his point of view that we knew we needed to have Ryan come to Big Tent. And only in true Big Tent fashion, having never direct messaged anyone on Twitter, we decided that now was the time. So we DM'd Ryan on Twitter to see if he would come to speak to Big Tent. We are thrilled that he immediately responded and agreed. Ryan Bussey is a former firearms executive who helped build one of the world's most iconic gun companies, Kimber America. He was nominated multiple times by industry colleagues for the prestigious Shooting Industry Person of the Year Award and he ended his 30-year career in the industry to tell its secrets. He remains a proud outdoorsman, gun owner, father, and a resident of Montana. He now serves as senior advisor to former Congresswoman Gabby Gifford's organization. And hopefully many of you received his new book, We Sent Out This Week, Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. For those who didn't, we will post a link in the chat to purchase it. Ryan wrote the book because as he writes, he, we need to know the truth about how the country's fascination with guns, power, and radicalization forms the framework of our modern existence. Our conversation will be moderated by Melissa Kane. She is the chair of the board of directors for Connecticut Against Gun Violence and a member of the advisory board of Newtown Action Alliance. After Sandy Hook, as everyone knows, Connecticut took the lead in gun safety reform and the state continues to pave the way towards a safer world for our children. Tonight, our guests will discuss how Ryan got to where he is today why the gun industry has so much control and what he thinks we can do. Please feel free to put your questions in the chat and we will be happy to answer them. Before we open the conversation, we recognize that there is some serious flooding in Ryan's home state of Montana, some calling it a 500 year event. We wish everyone continued safety. Ryan and Melissa, again, thank you for being here and Melissa, take it away. Thank you so much, Susan. Uh, I have to say, um, I was so excited to be asked to moderate this evening. Um, and it was a roundabout way, um, but to moderate and to speak with Ryan, whom I had also heard on the bulwark and I knew who he was and I felt that his voice was a really important voice and um, one, one that had been missing um, from the conversation um, for me, um, you know, in, in the work that we do here in Connecticut with CAGV and Newtown Action Alliance, it's, it's been really important to try and engage and activate um, gun owners to become part of sort of solving the problem of, uh, of gun violence. And so, um, so I was really thrilled to be able to have a, a conversation with him. And then I read the book. And I mean, Ryan, hello. <laughs> so glad to see you. I'm glad you're okay. And I'm glad, um, you know, everything is okay in Montana at the moment. Um, but I have to say your book is written so beautifully and um, it, it paints such a vivid and painterly picture of um, your your life, your career. And um, I'm gonna let you tell us, you know, how we got to where we are now. But I have to just say what got me the most um, was being able to experience kind of the slow burn of your horror of what, you know, you had grown up with loving and what the gun industry 
has become. And you have given a really, a, both in your book and actually an article that just came out today in the Atlantic, which um, is amazing. And I hope everyone reads. Um, and I and I do hope, like Susan said, that everybody goes out and buys um, Gunfight. We, we gave away 50, Big Tent gave away 50 um, uh, books tonight, but I know a lot of people didn't get them. So I really hope people will read this, this beautiful book. Um, but um, but I'd love to start out with you, um, if you can sort of, you know, set the scene for us of, of your career um, and how it and how it plays into how we got to where we are now and the role the gun industry has played in that. And really the role, as you have said, and you really said it many times, and you you kind of gave a sort of a linear timeline of how we've gotten to where we are in that the gun industry has manufactured and marketed a culture war. So take it away. Um, I know I'm, you know, I'm excited to hear <laughs> a lot of what you have Well, um, thank you so much, um, Susan, Melissa, everybody here. Um, I want to say it's, uh, it's things like this that give me hope. Um, people getting together, forming organizations to try to take the mic back from the polls and the radicals who, you know, they're destroying our country. And I, and I, um, I guess you're right, Melissa. I feel like I was lived in the kitchen where much of our political division and radicalization was cooked up, where our families were broken apart, where our workplaces no longer function properly, um, where half of us hate the other half of us, and um, you know it was it was quite frightening. And in the beginning, the first parts of my book, I think it's very important that we understand how it is that people who own guns and, a, and um, an identification with a culture like that can be used by nefarious political forces, fear um, manufactured and created conspiracies around that. And then that wrapped up into this huge political ball that we have now. And I, <clears throat> I know that um, the organization Big Ten is not specifically focused on gun issues. I would like to say, though, I believe in, in the thesis of my book is that Everything is a gun issue now because everything that we care about, climate, women's reproductive rights, um, I like to say even local school boards, right? They're all now wrapped up in this all or nothingism, this radicalization that the NRA let upon the country starting really 1999 after the Columbine shooting, when we now know through secret tapes obtained by the NPR where leadership of the, MP of the NRA basically said, well, we can be a part of the solution or we can use this to create fear and conspiracy about people taking culture and guns away, and that will create political outcomes for us. And um, they chose the latter, and eventually um, they forced that all on us. And if, and if that kind of like using everything, including mass shootings, including horrific events like Uvalde and Buffalo and Sandy Hook and Sutherland Springs and Las Vegas and Virginia Tech and Boulder and, I, and Aurora, and I could go on and on and on here, but like every one of those, after everyone, after a brief period, after a brief respite of silence, then we have, they're going to use this to come take our guns. They're going to attack our culture. They want to, to snuff you out. This like this sort of replacement theory uh, that's created around guns and culture. And I lived in that. I saw it taking shape. I saw it, you know, taking hold and it distressed me greatly. And so that's really what my book's about. And I'm I'm really worried about the country. I'm worried about the role gun radicalization plays in it. And I'm also obviously worried about the spillover effects like we've seen in Boulder or in Buffalo and, and Uvalde here recently. You know, um, you mentioned um, capitalizing on fear, 
then that's what the NRA has done, as you said, since, um, well, it's interesting. You, as I said, I mean, you really have laid out these watershed moments. You, you talk about Columbine, but even before that with the assault weapons ban and before that with Reagan's being shot I and mean, the way the industry has slowly um, been sort of propelled towards, um, as you call it, a tactical lifestyle, which is where we are now, which is very different from the, yeah. the, the, the lifestyle you grew up with, which was responsible gun ownership, very different relationship with guns. Um, and I'd love to hear you talk about that. But, but here's, and you and I talked about this yesterday, this is not a new um, scenario. This isn't. This is sort of a, a playbook as old as time. You, you in the book, you talk about totalitarianism. I mean, what the NRA has done in capitalizing on fear is take the old sort of divide and conquer and totally um, control the narrative. And I guess um, you know. And you talk about um, you know all within the state, none outside the state, none against the state, and Mussolini. I mean, it, it's really incredible. This has been done in humanity over and over and over again. And here we are, um, and we've had 25 plus years sort of watching it happen, not really seeing it happen, unfortunately, until too late. And yet you were sort of there, you were there in it. So I, 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 I'm really interested in your experience. And I said before, you know, as, as sort of the horror grew, how you felt, um, and, you, and you talk about this in the book, how you felt you could actually change that outcome. Well, um, I guess, first off, I'm stubborn and hard-headed and um, <laughs> probably believed I could do more than I could. Um, and the industry, it eventually got too big. I, I couldn't change it. I, I did what I could. I held to my principles. I grew up on a ranch. You know, the first part of my book is about is about my rural upbringing. And I, I grew up on a ranch, almost literally born with a shotgun in one hand and a rifle in the other. And um, many of the best days of my life were spent with guns we worked hard on that ranch. And when we had, and we had time to have fun, which wasn't very often, it often involved guns. I was hunting with my dad or my grandfather or target shooting with my brother. And so guns for me were this sort of wholesome Americana, this, this escapism, this thing, you know, they were vehicles for me to, to enjoy things. And that they became very wrapped up and, and um, they identified with my culture. And so when people um, like the NRA figured out that all they had to do was take Bill Clinton, who passed the assault weapons ban, um, and say, "Look, this guy is coming for your culture. They want they want to um, undo everything that you experienced with your dad." And that sounds like it, it really sounds like conspiratorial hyperbole. But to me, as I write in the book, these were the beginnings of QAnon, right? Because there's no there's there's no rational thought to that. But the NRA took that and then eventually said about Obama, Barack Obama wants to rewrite the Constitution. Well, oddly, I mean, I've read the Constitution, the president can't rewrite it, but but they said that, and almost like a comedian, right, they looked around the room and, and these executives and intelligent people clapped and believed it. And it was almost like they said, well, if, if they'll believe that, let's try another one. And so eventually we got to a place where people believed that Hillary Clinton had sex slaves in a in the basement of a pizza parlor that doesn't have a basement. Um, but but that, that just didn't shock me. I saw the evolution of that. And what I learned from that is that, as we as we talked about yesterday, it's really easy for crafty, nefarious people to get the worst out of people, right? It's, it's easy to do that. I think we've seen that the last five or six years. It's a lot more difficult to do the hard work that you guys are doing to get the best out of people. And that's, that's why we have to work harder. That's why, we, that's why we have to have these conversations. That's why we have to write books. It's, it's harder to do that. 
Well, that's that's an interesting point. And, and it's interesting, especially this week, as we're seeing this new compromise legislation. I, I want to talk a little bit about that and about your thoughts on, on that. For me, um, and I know a lot of people within this space, um, it's it's a bit of a disappointment. I mean, I, I to be honest with you, right? Um, I'm very glad that something is going to happen because something has to happen and maybe it will save a few lives. But let's let's tell the truth about this. There's, you know, there's not going to be a universal background check. We're not going to have safe storage coming out of this. We're not going to have um, an assault weapons ban. And we'll talk more about that later because I know you have feelings about that. Um, but here's the thing. It doesn't in any way threaten to remake the gun business, right? We, they came to legislation that is, is in no way going to harm the gun business. And really from what I've been reading and what I've learned over the years is that oftentimes when there is gun control, gun violence prevention legislation of any kind, it actually helps the gun industry. In some oh, sale, sales are spiking right, right? now, huge, sales huge. Completely spike. Yeah. So um, what is the power then of this legislation, which is not you know, profiles and courage, which is not standing up really to the NRA in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, it, it, again, I, I'm, I'm pleased that we are moving forward and there's gonna be some like, you know, the, the ERPO uh, aspect of it is incredibly important. And we've got some wonderful legislation in Connecticut that I'm hoping that, you know, they're gonna be using some of our language. So, um, but what's the power of the legislation? Well, let me give you a little hope. Um, it's, it's easy to be disappointed with this, I know, because rational people look around and say, look, I can identify four or five things we can do right now. I mean, how difficult can it be? Um, let me say, let me say first about why it is so difficult. I came to understand, and let, let, let's just look at universal background checks, which normally across the country polls positively somewhere between 80 and 90%, right? I mean, there's no flavor of ice cream that pulls 80 or 90%. It doesn't, like nothing. Chocolate chips don't pull 80 or 90%. Nothing does. Um, but, but universal background checks does, and yet we cannot pass it. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because that's a pebble, all right? And it's a pebble that you, you think you ought to be able to pick up and just toss over the fence, no problem. But that pebble is attached to this much larger boulder, maybe even a mountain. And that mountain is the very DNA of the right side of our politics. Now, this, this NRA-ism makes up the right side of our politics. It's intimidation, it's conspiracy theory, it's all or nothing. It's everything that is that was the NRA 15 or 20 years ago, that is now adopted at the very heart of the right of our politics. So as you tear into even a small piece of it, universal background checks, which sounds completely easy, like then, I'm sorry, it's, it's not very easy because, because it is, they've, they've been told it's all or nothing, right? So you're, 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 you think you're attacking the easiest thing to do and you're actually attacking something that's very, exceedingly difficult, but it's also the most important thing to do in our country. This is what, if we're going to unwind all this, we might as well go to the source of it and start unwinding it or nothing's gonna happen. So reason for hope. Yes, this bill um, doesn't do everything that doesn't even do some of the things that you wished it would, but it starts to turn the tide. Um, I think back to 15, 18, 19 years ago and the industry that I worked in would not allow tactical gear, vest, gloves, glasses, helmets, the same stuff that was worn and researched and purchased by the Buffalo shooter and somewhat by the Uvalde shooter would not allow that gear to be displayed or even advertised or really even discussed 
in its own industry trade shows, right? Imagine that the gun industry would not allow this. Wasn't a law. There wasn't any mandate. There, no law enforcement agency told them they had to do it. It was done out of a sense of decency and responsibility. In other words, it was a social norm, right? They, the industry knew not to proliferate this stuff in society. And that was reinforced by stuff like, or, you know, bills like the, the, um, the assault weapons ban. And that the assault weapons ban, by the way, did not outlaw AR-15s. People think it did. It did not. You can purchase AR-15s. In fact, the Buffalo shooter purchased an AR-15 that was built during the assault weapons ban. What we had, though, was a social stigma, a set of norms, um, things, lines across, you you didn't want to step across, you knew not, that wise men then enforce them, all the things that a society is built on, we had that. And what I like about what we've seen out of the Senate, and hopefully what they'll pass, hopefully nobody gets cold feet on this, um, is a at least we're starting to think make things marginally better, we're starting to reestablish our norms, we're starting to say what is acceptable and what isn't. At least we're on that path now. And remember, we got into this mess over 30 years. We're not going to fix it with one Senate vote. So don't get your hopes too high. Sure, that that's fair. And so I don't know, does it go far enough towards reestablishing social norms? I guess that's a matter of, of time. But let me ask you, you know, there's so much evidence that the NRA is weakened. Um, and yet it seems like maybe it's too late for that to make a difference with lawmakers. Maybe um, too much of the base is radicalized, as you're saying. So, you know, for people who say, well, the NRA is weakened, so there's an opportunity here to do more than this. I mean, what do you, what do you say to that? No, I don't think there is an opportunity. If there was an opportunity, I mean, we're gonna have to create the opportunity, right? We're gonna have to, we're, we're gonna have to show that 10 Republican senators can do this and live through it. Unfortunately, several of them are retiring, but, um, right. but, but- um, And, and none of the election other than Romney, I think. Yeah, exactly. And Romney has already demonstrated that he's okay. Um, he's okay bucking the party here. So I, I, I um, the base is really radicalized. I don't have to tell you guys this, right? And, and um, the Republicans on the right are going to take the ones that vote for this, they're gonna take a lot of grief. Um, I've seen it, I, I don't recommend you do this because you won't be able to sleep for several nights, but in the chat groups and on the, you know, on the message boards in the firearms industry, like you, you would think that these people just unleash nuclear war on the United States. That's how this is positioned. I mean, as you know, Melissa, like there is no earth shattering stuff in the bill. There's marginally good stuff, which I appreciate, but it is being treated as, as if, um, you know, nuclear war has been unleashed. And that is, that's a manifestation of this all or nothingism. Now, I don't care if the NRA was at its max or its minimum. And I think it's somewhere in between. I, I think it's, I think its demise has been somewhat overstated, but it, it, it is weakened. But the virus that it has put into the base is not weakened. That's not likely to go away. Um, it may, we're going to have to diminish it over time. And so, um, that we're going to live with that for a while, whether the NRA continues to weaken some or not, we're still going to live with it. So, okay. So how do we weaken it? You say we, we start to reestablish social norms, but what's next? What can we do? Um, what can, we've had this discussion, what can gun owners who are not represented by what the NRA is spewing do? Um, what's next? They can, they can make a call. So I'm also heartened by this. When I released the book and when news of it leaked, um, my family and I were very 
frightened about lots of stuff, not the least of which was physical safety, physical safety of my boys. We live in a very red area. Um, my boys in one of them in eighth grade and one of them a junior in high school, we were worried about what they would experience at, in their schools. I both go to public schools here. We were, we were worried about our physical safety, like snipers above our home. Um, we were worried about our digital safety, everything. And actually what happened was con almost diametrically opposed to what we worried about. In other words, yes, I get some trolling and it's the typical thoughtless, you know, 18 four letter words mixed with a couple invectives. Like it's not, it's not, a, it's not super thoughtful, right? But I get hundreds, if not thousands of messages from gun owners, from families of gun owners, from people who know gun owners or people just concerned about our country. Like, thank you for doing this. It's gone too far. I'm, I support gun rights, but we can't do this. In other words, there, are, there is this sea, as Steve Schmidt calls them, the, the growing frustrated majority. There is this sea yeah, of people that frustrated majority has been a silent majority. What, how do you grow their advocacy? I mean, you being out here is wonderful. Um, someone like Ed Stack, you know, what he did with Dix, that, that I would think would have motivated a, a lot more people at the time to be more public about being gun owners who were not okay with the direction the NRA was taking this country. Yep. I, well, it starts with one. It starts with two. Yeah, I, I wish more people would have followed. I mean, Ed took a lot of heat, you know. Um, Dix took a lot of heat, but he didn't back down, and their their business in the end didn't suffer. Um, I, I I think it's going to take individuals to do it, and we have to stand up and take. We just have to take the mic back. I know I know the people are out there, um, and the thing that has, I guess, the thing that has surprised me the most is that there, when something like Uvalde happens, it certainly certainly distresses everybody. Any, any gun owner should be exceedingly distressed by that. But what distresses gun owners more in general overall is the thought that the democracy may be in peril because of radicalization from gun owners. That really distresses them. And, um, and I, I think they actually see kind of like Uvalde as a spillover effect from that. And this is where we must join arms with gun owners and say, you know, we believe in rights and protecting freedoms too. And we have to stand up for responsibilities for that to happen. You know, you said it to me. It, it's it, who the messenger is, is so very, very important. And hearing this from gun owners and having legislators hear this from gun owners, I've seen in, in our advocacy is so incredibly important. There are a lot of great questions coming in and I want to get to them. Um, I'll ask this because one of the questions was about um, where you stand and what to do about safe storage. But in Connecticut, when we were... Uh, um, passing Ethan's law, which is a law about safe storage, yeah. it was a bipartisan uh, push. We yeah. really had support. We even had some support from the NSSF, yeah. uh, National Sports Shooting Foundation. And um, we expected at a national level not to get, you know, working with, with Mike and Kristen Song, not to get the type of um, just, you know, stop sign immediately from the NRA because in the past, as you've said, the NRA was about responsible gun ownership and, and locking up your guns was absolutely what you did. You yeah. know, it's what's taught in the military. It was taught by the NRA. So it shouldn't have been, you know, this is one of those things that made me, I guess it's all or none. To me, I said it to you before, I, I, you know, I, I think it's the ultimate cynicism that the NRA realized, well, if guns are being stolen, then people will buy more guns. But what do you think about it? And how do you think, What's the importance of passing those laws and how that, you know, is that part of waiting until norms are 
change? Well, no, I think that's that's reestablishing the same. You know, I go back to what the industry once knew. I know it's in the DNA of gun owners because I lived it. I was like, I, I saw it. And so the idea, you know, I, I encourage you to use um, messengers, gun owners who are, you know, messengers who are gun owners. They, they get credence. I saw it um, just last week in Washington, D.C., John Cornyn wasn't going to take meetings, and then we brought gun owners into the room. Uh, a couple of them were Texans, and he said, "Okay, I'll talk." Um, at was least we had a conversation. With, with your group, was this with gun owners for safety? Gun owners for safety with Giffords, yeah. A little yeah. about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's is that bringing people who are gun owners? Yeah. So that's that we're bad. working there to form up a counterbalance to the NRA by saying, uh, uh, you know, doing what you were just talking about, like, where are these gun owners? Why aren't they standing up? Well, we're doing it. We're bringing them together. We have chapters in several states. I'm happy. I'm helping Giffords with this. I think it's very important because lawmakers, the reason, one of the reasons this stuff doesn't get done is because lawmakers have been told for so long that gun owners are a monolithic group, that they all believe what the NRA believes, like they're all stalwart, stalwart about this stuff. And that is just bunk. It's just not true. Um, the problem is, is that those ones that they have been told uh, exist, you know, ubiquitously are the loud ones. They're the ones with the mic. I mean, and if that sounds a lot like our national politics, well, you know, it, it is our national politics. It is, it is all, all one. Um, all right. I want to turn to some incredible questions that are coming in. Um, and we, we, I'd love to, this is interesting. Uh, what, what, this comes from Nicole Heath. Hi, Nicole. What do you consider reasonable restrictions on assault weapon sales? She says, I sense towards the end of the book that you don't believe sales of them should be controlled. Is that a pragmatic position due to their importance to the bottom line of the biggest players in the industry at this point? Or is it a different reason? No, I think that, um, well, let me start by saying fully auto guns, which assault weapons generally aren't, fully auto guns are heavily regulated. They have been since 1934. They have a basically a magnum background check on them. You have to get a federal tax stamp. It's $200, which hasn't been adjusted since 1934 for inflation, but still it's $200. Um, takes a long time. And so your neighbor can maybe own a fully auto gun, like a Tommy gun, the stuff that Al Capone used. Do you know how many mass shootings have been committed with fully auto guns since 1934? Exactly zero. And so heavier regulation, stronger background checks, some more extensive um, you know, application of federal regulation on assault weapons, it will work because it has been working. I, I don't think it's feasible to talk about a ban. We, we texted back and forth about this today, simply because there are somewhere between 30 and 40 million of these things in existence. You're going to create a black market. I don't know I don't, I just don't see feasibly how it works, both physically how it works and politically how it works. I don't, you couldn't unite the Democratic caucus on this. Um, you, you would lose several votes, maybe four or five votes, maybe 10. Um, and so it's just not feasible. But what is feasible is much heavier regulation. And there's something called time to crime, which means the typical time between somebody who's going to commit a crime gets their gun and then goes and commits it. And it's not in all cases, but in most cases, it's a pretty short window. Buffalo and Uvalde were both like this. Yeah. The guy got the gun. Pretty soon he committed the crime. It wasn't like they've been planning this for years and years. So strictly by regulating stuff at sale with stronger background checks and higher age limits, we could cut a lot of this out. It seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, but something else that would make a lot of sense and that would help regulate things is 
bringing back um, a, a lie, you know, or removing uh, the liability shield that, that, that exists right now. Um, and we talked a little bit about that, um, you know, is it, it, there was an article that came out in, in the, uh, an opinion piece that came out in the New York Times yesterday by Todd Tanner. Um, I don't know if you read it. Where, He's a friend of mine, yeah. Yeah, and he, and he talks about the liability shield. Um, you and I talked, and I agree with you. I, I think that repealing PLACA is really one of the most important ways to get to, 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 to regulate the industry. I mean, it's about money when you come yeah. down to it. It's about security. So it was 2005 when PLACA was passed, um, which was the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. Um, and I need then, to, maybe I could explain to everybody what I'd that love is. It if you could explain, I was just going to say, if you can, if you can take us through why that was so important to bring. So, us so when that was passed in 2005, if we think back to this, we, um, I've often talked about cigarettes and tobacco, but the law um, was passed because the firearms industry was being threatened by the same sort of municipal and state lawsuits that had been applied to big tobacco and forced them into these marketing agreements and healthcare agreements and everything else. And so those were being threatened against, um, there were about 20 or 30 suits filed against most big players in the firearms industry. And Bush at the behest of NRA, George W. Bush at the behest of the NRA signed a placket which provide, provides a broad federal liability shield from um, any firearms company, even if they market irresponsibly. This is the key thing even if they market irresponsibly. So it says that if your product is used in an un unlawful way, you cannot be held liable for it. The problem is, is that irresponsible companies in the industry have seen this as licensed to market irresponsibly. They're like, well, if I tell a bunch of people that, you know, to buy the Urban Super Sniper, which literally is a gun right now, when you get off here, go Google it. It's a, it's a AR-15 that you can purchase and it's, you know, advertised aggressively. If I go purchase the Urban Super Sniper, which appears that I'm supposed to use it to go to an urban area and super snipe people, but I am, you know, I, I, nobody can be held liable for it. And that's true. That federal shield protects that. And no other industry enjoys that kind of protection. And it has allowed the worst players in the firearms industry to do incredibly irresponsible things. And for me, as a responsible gun owner, I, I'm worried about what that does to gun rights, right? So I think responsible gun owners need to stand up and say, mm-mm we need to hold ourselves to responsible benchmarks. So you're bringing back that culture, you, 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 you believe that bringing back the culture of responsibility to gun owners, that's-, that's I, I don't know what else we can do, frankly. Yes, we must do it. We have- There is a bill, sorry, go ahead. Well, we have 400 million guns in the United States. I mean, I've driven um, and, and been in cars between New York City and Connecticut and all over the East Coast. Looks like to me, there's a lot of cars, right? There's 287 million registered vehicles in the United States, a lot. There's 400 million guns, over 100 million more guns than there are registered vehicles. Like, so we got to figure out a way to fix this culturally. Just fixing, just fixing some laws that deal with guns being sold, like doesn't, it doesn't fix the cultural problem. Well, there's no doubt that if if this liability shield was removed, and we've seen it, I mean, I want to, I want to, you know, in, we saw, and we've talked about this, the Josh Koskoff friend, I don't know if he's on tonight, was able to, um, in some ways, chip away at it with his um, lawsuit for the uh, Sandy Hook families, where they were able to get remuneration from, um, from Remington, right? They, yeah. they, 
this this was the first time this has happened really and it was an important step but there's you know i, I guess in order for it to have widespread um, impact on the gun industry it has to really be a full repeal of this law it does josh and his team i think were masterful at what they did um there's a there's and and he, he's the attorney he would he would probably correct me on some of this stuff but there's a workaround in placa because there are state state law workarounds a lot of this stuff happened to happen in connecticut the law happened to be in place in connecticut um josh and his team were there they uh they aligned the stars and it worked but it's not going to work in texas there is no such workaround in texas right with uvalde so we we need something federally to fix that um so there is and i want to ask a couple of different questions after this, but there is um, an Equal Access to Justice for Victims um, Act that uh, Adam Schiff introduced uh, in Congress last year, HR 2814. I mean, is that something you think like, okay, this is something we should be advocating for? This is, this is you know, a way forward? Yeah, I think things like that, and I, and I don't know all the details of that law, but, you know, in, in the very it's basics of the way a democracy works, like entities and people either be responsible or you pass laws to make them responsible. Like it's just that simple. And so if the industry and gun users and gun stores and gun companies, whatever, aren't gonna be responsible, then we have to have legislation to hold them responsible. And it's just that simple. Um, all right, I've got a couple of questions here that I think are fascinating. Um, what do you think about um, when celebrities like Matthew McConaughey um, make a speech? Do you think it makes any difference? I do. I love McConaughey's speech. Um, I think it was heartfelt. I think it was on the money. He's got skin in the game. He grew up in Uvalde. His mom was a kindergarten teacher there. Um, and people listen to him. And um, if he's got a platform and wants to use it to make the world better, um, uh, give the guy a hug and a high five. I'm pretty psyched that he said what he said. Um, but but does it, but who does it, you know, does it, does it reach? So I think what McConaughey does is chip away at the edge of um, responsible gun owners. He, he, by doing what he did, he gives people license to stand up and feel that way, to say, yeah, yeah, I, I own guns, but I'm not with the crazy guys. I want to do the right thing, like McConaughey said, right? He, he, can, help, he can help mold the social stigma to a degree that more people are comfortable, you know, saying the stuff that we're saying here tonight. If you notice, McConaughey said the word responsible about 15 times. Right. Well, thinking about responsible gun ownership, you think about the military and how when people um, are in the military, they're taught how to use a gun, how to store a gun. Weapons are treated with an incredible amount of respect. Um, do you know, Do you, does gun safety or do gun safety... Um, um, does the type of work we're talking about, does that have a lot of support among veterans? That's one of the um, It's funny, I do get, I just talked to a couple today. They, um, they're they very distressed that the sort of safety rules and responsibility that they were taught as soldiers is, is being ignored by the general populace. And so um, we, we read a lot about the way in which our veterans and some of servicemen, former servicemen have been radicalized, but there's also an awful lot of them that are extremely distressed by this. And I don't know what it is in our society where these people who are radicalized are just so much louder and seemingly more powerful. And so we think they're more numerous, right? There's something about 
human psyche where the, the loud person in the room, like you think they have all this support, but they may not. I, I really do think that's what's going on. Um, and like I said, that's, you know, I, that's, this, this happens over and over again in history. Um, what, uh, tell us a little bit, so we've got a question here about the market, the market from the business end to the consumer end of assault weapons that we're talking about. I'm guessing this person wants to know about actually AR-15s, which you talk so much about in the book, about how it was such a tiny, tiny part of the industry and it was really just um, military and to growing to being, yeah, what is it, 2 million sold? Yeah, about 3.6 million in 2020. Yeah. Um, what, what, it, what's the, what is the market like? Well, it went, it went from not, basically nothing in 2000 to it's it's probably oh anywhere from three and a half to five million units a year just on assault weapons now the total gun market went from an average uh, when I started of about three hundred thousand guns sold per month which sounds like a lot to a time now when a, a big month is three million in a month and a big year is twenty five million in a year and so it, it, I think something else that's very illustrative if you map um, gun sales and then try to like peg um, radicalization, how you thought about political radicalization or political conciliatory activity, um, the, the inverse of that and, and lay those two charts over top of each other, they're almost dead nuts identical, right? Starting in 2007, the gun, gun graph goes like this, so does our political radicalization. And so my thesis about how they're deeply intertwined, I think is, is right out there. But now, um, now we're, we're putting about, between 20 and 23 million guns a year in the United States public and about uh, 4 million of those are AR-15s. And that's that's something that 15 years ago wasn't even imaginable. Mm. I, I will, one other thing I will say is I often hear pushback to this, like, it's not the guns. That's not what changed, you know? The family's falling apart. Like, uh, we've always had guns. I mean, excuse me, but time out. We have not always had 25 million guns piping in the United States, and we have not always had 4 million assault rifles pumping in the United States. That's just not true. Yeah. Well, here's a question. <laughs> what is the Achilles heel of the gun manufacturer? Irresponsible actions and being held to account for the liability for it. Um, do you think that post Uvalde, the gun lobby is as strong as it was before. Um, and you've got in Texas, I've got a question here, why is Governor Abbott weakening gun laws? So is that a reaction to the strength of, of, the, um, of the gun, a fear that there's a, you know, that, that, that the gun lobby is actually shrinking in strength? So I think for you guys to understand this and um, think of not only Texas, think of a congressional district that you know of, and then think of the gun industry and think of the most badly right-winged, um, gerrymandered congressional district you can think of. Um, let's take Marjorie Taylor Greene's district in Georgia or wherever. You only have incentive to go one way, right? You only have incentive to become ever more radical, to say ever more incendiary things. You have to get more attention. And that's what the gun industry made itself. It became very insular. There's no dissent. There's no pressure from the left. The, only, the pressure only comes from the right. And so you every year you see things introduced in the market and marketing campaigns that you never thought possible because just like a congressional district, it has to do that to um, maintain its energy and its growth. And I, I look at Abbott's actions kind of like that, right? He 
he believes in Texas that his Achilles heel is being challenged from the right. So he will do whatever it takes to gin up the right further. And in a state where he promised to, after the last bad school shooting in Santa Fe, Texas, he promised to do you know, what it takes to make it better. He decreased funding for mental health care and he removed permitting for concealed carry. That's how he made it better. So to me, that feels like, I know Texas is like a great big district, but it's pulled to the right. It just keeps getting worse. Um, we've got to challenge it from the other direction. And that's regardless of the quote unquote strength of the gun lobby. Well, the, the gun lobby, remember that the gun lobby has created the base now, right? And so much like we see on the right, um, how- The lobby becomes the base, right? Yeah, they're, they're exactly. They're worried about the base voter, but they have created such a fervor that it bubbles up from the base, yeah. That's interesting. Um, there's a interesting question here that um, I can open it. Um, the, the NRA is uniquely American, and you, you've sort of started to answer this, but why do you think that is? Well, <laughs> there's lots of stuff in the American psyche that is unique as compared to the rest of the world. We have this idea of this swagger and this, um, you know, sort of manifest destiny and this we created, we're self-made people. And I mean, all of it's part true and part myth, but nothing nothing really symbolizes that like gun ownership, right? Because if you, and I, I felt this way as a kid in, in my own culture, hard work and farm kid. And then all of a sudden I pick up my little lever action 22 rifle and I'm, I'm a master of my own destiny. I, I mean, I can become a hunter. I can become a villain. I can become, I can walk over the hill and nothing can hurt me. Like I, I'm, you know, all of a sudden I'm this American kid. And I think that sort of psyche weaves through, um, all Americans to some degree, and the NRA knew instinctually and accidentally, and I don't know how it all came together. I think there was a fair amount of accident, but they knew how to tap into that and then really wrap a flag around it and lay a Bible beside it and do all the things that they've done to, to really juice that. Um, that's interesting. Uh, and, and, and to that point, um, there's a question here about the 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 difference between what is the difference between and maybe maybe unmasking who the NSSF are and what the difference between them and the NRA and their influence is. Well, there basically is no difference. They, for all intents and purposes, are the same. But the NSSF, which is the industry um, trade group, um, basically all companies in the industry belong to the NSSF. It's based, as many of you know, in Newtown, Connecticut, which is a very frightening irony. Um, and the NSSF has enjoyed something that most trade groups haven't enjoyed for their existence, which they have this loud <laughs> vitriolic attack dog out in front of them, creating all the noise, taking all the heat, creating all the space, meaning that's the NRA. And the NSSF can be quiet behind the scenes and make all the business moves. But you'll never find a case where the NSSF and the NRA differ on policy. Um, and it, I assert in the book, and I'm, you know, I'm probably the only, probably the only gun executive to listen to NPR in the morning, but um, I did that every day. And um, I heard many, many times like that the NRA just does the bidding of the gun industry. And I, I just like when I'm screaming at the radio, like, no, it's the opposite. Um, the NRA basically runs the industry because setting that that top line sort of never give an inch um, political mantra 
is also very beneficial from a business standpoint, and the NSSF knows that. Interesting. Um, I have a question here, um, which goes back to what we were talking about before, um, and and you know, removing the liability shield. But what can be done to get insurance companies to stop insuring gun companies? Well, the free market's the free market until there's some sort of. I mean, an insurance company is going to in, in, insure an entity until they feel like it's no longer in, in their, you know, in their fiduciary good sense to do it. Um, and when you have a liability a shield, well, you know, not a lot of downside. Um, it, 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 it does stun me when I think about the fact that Plaga exists and, and, the, and the huge difference that it makes. Um, I've got a question from, um, let's see, wait a minute, uh, Jonathan Perlow from CAGV. Um, to what degree is election reform that makes our democracy more representative, independent redistricting, national popular vote, ending filibuster? Is it necessary to get to the underlying issues causing the polarization and specifically with respect to guns? Well, I think it's huge because, I mean, this issue that we're talking about is such a poster child for um, the kind of minority rule issues that are brought up with that question, right? I mean, when we have, I can't remember, what, 40, I, I know at one point there were 17% of the U.S. population could, could essentially stop all legislation in the Senate because that was how many senators were needed um, to, stop, to, to stop legislation, right? 17% of the population as represented by those senators. And so to the point, that, like election reform, we, we, we need to democratize our elections and our representation instead of um, undemocratizing them, which is making this problem worse, which is again, why you see, you see things like 80 plus percent uh, approval of background checks and we can't pass it. Well, that's because that's because um, that 82% is not equally distributed amongst the United States. We need it, Sioux Falls, South Dakota is not 82% for that. I assure you, <laughs> you know. Right, right. Um, did you have a very specific aha moment when you realized, look, okay, I have to just stop doing what I'm doing. What I'm doing isn't working. I know I wanted to change this from within, but that's not happening. Yeah, yeah I did. And for those that read the book, you'll know um, I'm definitely not the hero of the book. My wife, Sarah, is. And so, again, honored to be talking. Yeah, where is with, she? Like, like I know, to... I know. I'm, I'm really, <laughs> seriously, a little tired of hearing this. She'll be signing autographs later. I've done this before where, like, podcast, and they'll be like, could we get Sarah on the podcast, please? Um, but she really is very, very powerful, um, insightful woman, lucky to have her as my wife. And she had been nudging me for a long time. And my aha moment was that I stood up in 2004, gave a speech at the National Press Club about wild places in the United States and the fact that um, the Bush-Cheney energy plan was set to rototill several of them, including the Val Vidal in New Mexico and the Rome Plateau in Colorado in my sacred place, um, my church, the Badger Two Medicine here in Montana. And when I did that, I knew what the hook was. I was this like supposedly you know, conservative guy from a conservative industry um, criticizing a Republican president in the lead-in to a re-election. But I was doing it for hunters and for shooters. And I thought, well, how could I possibly be criticized? I'm doing, you know, I'm standing up for where hunters use their guns and I'm in the gun industry. Well, 
as you might guess, things didn't go exactly as I thought they might. I was from the very highest levels, including the very highest levels in the NSSF, Wayne LaPierre, and then thousands and thousands of trolls, they called for my head. And by the skin of my teeth, I kept my job, but the scales fell, fell from my eyes there. And I thought, okay, you have been selling everybody that you're for hunters and for environment. And I'm, I'm a huge environmentalist and um, you know, climate and environment are very, very important to me. Um, and I basically, I figured out that I had been sold a bill of goods. Um, it wasn't quite that fast. You know, as I said, Sarah nudged me and I had that moment and then she nudged me a little bit after, but if I had an aha moment, it's right then I figured out that I'd been tricked into voting against my own self-interest and I decided I'm never doing it again. Okay. Well, um, you were in a tricky spot for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. Well, from there on, I, um, the fights I picked were, you know, I worried about losing my job every single day. Um, I got trolled a lot. Sarah got trolled a lot. She would speak out. Um, well, there were people about that in a little bit about how um, racism and misogyny has become a part of this culture war. And yeah, well, I saw for years, I saw the NRA use racism and propagate it. And I like to say, you know, it's not in this kind of march down the aisle at the NRA convention with a white hood kind of racism. It's the same kind of racism that you saw in the Trump administration where we danced right up to saying it, but we just didn't quite say the racist stuff. You, you, you knew it was racist, but there was like this little bit of an out. And so an example I write about in the book, but I once saw as I was trying to get into the NRA convention, uh, mostly, you know, probably 500, mostly white guys um, stacked up to get in. The one black face I saw was a security guard letting everybody in. And there was a guy with a t-shirt during the Obama administration said, don't blame me. I voted for the white guy, um, meaning McCain versus Obama. And everybody in the crowd was like giving this guy high fives and talking about how funny it was. And here is a black security guard letting everybody in. I just looked at that thought, you know, I mean, come on. Um, that same day, I saw a guy with a African lion and Barack Obama and it said African lion, lion African, and he was selling these t-shirts and people were congratulating him. This was in the NRA convention. That same day, and I write about this as one of the chapters in the book, but Glenn Beck was addressing the convention and that was in his birtherism days, right? That was the, the birther conspiracy about Barack Obama. So it's- it's, it's little it's, gifts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very useful. Um, I think what, the, what I learned from the NRA is it's, it's difficult if you, if you don't have- um, very definable enemies, and you haven't created this aura, that this stigma that you are being victimized, um, it's very difficult to radicalize people. And I saw the NRA masterfully, I mean, evilly, but masterfully um, use those components and create them. Hmm. We, I'm, I'm looking at the clock and we don't have a lot of time left. Um, there's been a couple of questions asking you to discuss the new Ohio bill and talking a little bit about school security security industry um, and your thoughts on that. I hate that Ohio bill with the passion of a thousand burning suns. Um, sorry to hold back there, but um, this idea that, look, 19 highly trained security law enforcement people are so scared at a school in Uvalde that they can't go in and rescue kids. And we think we're gonna put guns in teachers' hands and it's gonna go great. Come on. Um, I've been in stressful situations. I've shot guns since I was three or four. I don't think I could keep my head in most of these things. 
we are putting way, way, way too much on our teachers. And this idea that we're going to put guns in their hands and then things are going to go well, I just, I, I cannot tell you how many ways I think this is a bad idea. So how do you change that narrative? Well, I mean, that's first off, we as a society have all of these problems, income distribution, poverty, racism, and, and we tend to try to fix it at the end, right? The teacher is the end of all this, not the beginning. And then we're going to put guns in our hands. So, I mean, we've got to do the hard work of fixing the systemic problems, not try to pile it on a poor teacher that's making $45,000. And then we put a pistol in her, in her pocket. I mean, come on. Um, I, I, I just don't see how that's going to, to do it. We have to do the hard work of fixing the big problems. Um, I'm looking at the time, and uh, there are so many awesome questions in the chat. We've, got, we've gotten to a lot of them, but I think I need to ask our final question, which I think will be helpful to everybody on the call, um, which is, so what next? What can we do? What can the people who are involved with Big Tent, the people who are interested in this information and interested in making a difference do? I think you can do first what you're doing. It's awesome what you're doing, what you guys have created, this kind of turnout and this kind of support and just these sort of intelligent, rational, thoughtful conversations, which used to not be a rare thing, but they are these days. So let's get that going. And then don't set your sights so high that you're disappointed. Um, do the little things, fight for Ethan's law that you guys have fought for, Connecticut, like keep doing those things. It's going to matter. Um, and, and we're going to take it back little by little. Remember, just try to remember, I mean, I, I know it feels like we just arrived here yesterday and we're in this horrible situation and we just kind of screeched to a stop and here we are, but that's not really how it happened. We all lived through the last 30 years and it happened little by little by little by little, and we're going to get out of it little by little. So stick at it, do what you're doing, stand up for decency and responsibility. And the last thing I'll say is if you have radicalized people in your own social circle, now is the time to stop being quiet right? Now is the time to stop normalize it. Now is the time to not look away from it at Thanksgiving dinner when Uncle Bob, I, you know, I have this pejorative that I make up like crazy Uncle Bob says, I got all my guns and that Obama or that Biden better not say anything. Like, no, it's time to not, not be silent about that anymore because it's normalizing it and our, and our country's in peril because of it. So you're going to have to find some fortitude and stand up. Stand up and ask your friends with guns to stand Absolutely. 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 And and fight to repeal PACA. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Ryan, I can't thank you enough for um, for being here. And and Susan, I can't thank you enough for letting me uh, ask Ryan all these questions. Um, this has been, I, we, we could talk for hours and hours and hours. Um, I, I'm just really, really pleased to have had an opportunity to be a part of it. And Ryan, um, I can't wait to read your next article and your next <laughs> Well, thanks to everybody, um, everybody that's on here. And again, I just want to, I, I, I'm, it's, it's great what you guys have done. Um, you, if, if I know there's a couple of teachers watching cause I, uh, or because I saw their notes. So you were, everybody here gets a couple gold stars. Well, thank you, Ryan and Melissa so much for being on big tent. This conversation was fascinating. And with the bipartisan deal in Congress on the table, we all hope that democracy will prove that it can respond in this moment. And thank you everyone for watching and look for our email with the full recap and recording. And we do have several events coming up. Our next tent talk will be Tuesday where we're gonna write some letters with vote writers and organizations focused on voter ID. And our spotlight speaker, if you're staying on is um, 
renowned author and journalist Michael Lewis. He will be here July 13th at 7 p.m. Eastern. We will give away copies of either Fifth Risk or The Premonition for the first 100 registrants who sign up. Save the date also for political messenger Dan Pfeiffer, founder of Crooked Media, Pod Save America, and the Get Out the Vote organization Vote Save America, who will join us at the very end of July to discuss the big lie and what messaging we must do to break through the noise. Please check out our website and our monthly newsletter for updates, activism. So that's it. So good night and um, we'll see you soon.